So I want to start today a bit of a quote by a well-known Christian. It comes from his journal. He says, Brother Gill looked me straight in the eye and said, we are within 40 years of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. And that's a conservative estimate. Now that was a, um, that comes from Jim Elliott's journal. If you're familiar with Jim Elliott, he was a, uh, a missionary to South America, got killed down there at a very young age. Um, he's the one who's famous for the lines, um, uh, if I can remember how it went. Oh, he is no fool to give what he cannot keep to, to gain what he cannot lose. So very, very famous missionary. Comes from a very conservative, fundamental background. The elders that he's quoting in here are dispensationalist, fundamental uh, elders. They're not like you know, some firm black ones. So just an interesting quote that they leave us with. We're going to circle back to that at the end today, I hope, and I have some thoughts about it. Um, what I want to do today, originally I was thinking about kind of moving on to talking about the Apostolic Fathers today, but over the past couple of weeks, I've had a, a number of questions and comments from everyone here uh, that seems to kind of be going in the direction of eschatological end times doctrine. And so I thought, well, this might actually be a, a really good time to deal with that. Maybe just kind of handle that subject now. First reason is simply because the Church Fathers did have a very prominent eschatology, a very strong, uh, definite position on how things would be at the end times before Christ came back. Um, so it's really, it is a good thing that we spend some time in our study of the Fathers, the patristic era, that we spend some time in um, on uh, end times doctrine. The second reason I think it's a good time to go ahead with this is because 70 AD and the destruction of the temple is kind of related. It's, um, uh, it's tangentially related. There are some things in that that are related to other prophecies, and so it kind of uh, it has its relation. Now, also, I don't really see another time in our future Bible equipping hours where there's really a good spot to kind of circle back to this. In the rest of the patristic era, there's a lot of events, people, some controversies that come up. We're going to definitely have a lot to you know, focus on that doesn't, isn't really related to the end time. So I think now is as good a time as any, so I think that's what we'll do today. Um, if you want to go ahead in your Bibles, let's turn to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 20, we're going to look at verses 4 through 10. I'm just going to read those real quick. Revelation 20, 4 through 10. And John says, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison, and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. 
They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This passage um, is talking about what's known as the Millennial Kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ, and it is kind of both a defining passage and a dividing line for Christian eschatology throughout history. Um, if we look at the ways Christians have seen eschatology, they can be divided into about three different major camps, <coughs> just generally speaking. So the first camp, and I'll just name these in order of age, the first camp is what we call premillennial. Premillennial, or the traditional word for it, was Chiliast. C-H-I-L-I-A-S-T, Chiliast, or Chiliasm. Premillennial, the prefix pre, as that, as that would indicate, premillennials believe that Christ comes back before this thousand-year reign, spoken of here in, in Revelation 20. Um, then after he comes back, there's a literal thousand years, at the end of which... Um, Satan is Satan's bound during during the, the millennial reign, which means he's inactive. At the end of those thousand years, he's released, and then a lot of other evil things happen before the final end. So uh, the premillennial position is, is also a, a typically associated with uh, belief in a couple other things, like the um, coming of a specific person called Antichrist, and also the belief in a time of great persecution or great tribulation, which immediately precedes Christ's return. So that's your premillennial position. The second position, and it's only slightly younger than the premillennial position, is the amillennial position. So ah, of course, means without, not. Um, if you read or talk to a amillennial theologian, one of the things they may tell you is that amillennial is actually a bit of a misnomer. They don't feel that they're negating the millennium. They're not saying there is no millennium. Rather, what, what the amillennials believe is that this thousand-year reign is, one, it doesn't come after Christ's return, it's actually happened now. It was inaugurated when Christ came to earth, or when he wrote, depending on the specific position, might be when he rose from the dead or when he the church. And so the thousand years spoken of here shouldn't be taken literally as a literal thousand years, but rather symbolically as representing a very long time. An indistinct amount of time. Okay, uh, Satan. They do believe Satan is bound or confined in a sense, in, in, in the sense that with Christ coming and dying on the cross and rising again, he defeated Satan. And then, of course, uh, prior to the cross, the nations were all in darkness except for Israel. Now the, the gospel goes out to Israel, so Satan's ability to deceive the nations is is very limited. Okay. Um, also, the traditional amillennial uh, agreed with the premillennials that there's going to be an antichrist who comes, and there's also going to be a time of severe persecution. Uh, in recent history, I would say, probably since the Re Re Reformation, amillennials have kind of started to go different directions on that. For one thing, many of them, they're kind of following Martin Luther, they think that the papacy, as kind of that position, is uh, the Antichrist. Um, so it just some, starts to get very different after the Reformation. The third position uh, of interpretation on Revelation 20 is post-millennial. 
and the prefix post means that Christ comes back after the millennial kingdom at the end of it. Uh, so actually, it's very, very similar to amillennial. Um, in fact, it, at first glance, post and amillennialism look very similar. Both of them believe that Christ began the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign, when he came to earth. And they both believe Christ comes back at the end of it. The crucial difference between post-millennialism and amillennialism is that post-millennialism believes that uh, while this 1,000-year reign may not be a golden age now, it will become so preceding Christ's return. So whereas the premillennials, of course, believe that the 1,000-year reign is this, this time of great peace. There's very limited sin and death. There's some sin and death there, but it's nothing like what we presently know. Uh, well, the post-millennials believe the same thing, but they believe that this world is going to get to that state before Christ returns. Primarily, but most of them primarily by the preaching of the gospel. And so they see a sort of golden age coming, um, and then once the whole world is one with the gospel, uh, more or less believes or professes belief in Christ, Christ returns to a repentant world that both loves and welcomes him. That's the post-millennial position. This one is much, much younger than uh, the uh, either the premillennial or amillennial position. So that's what it is. Um, that's more or less a summary of the three different positions. Next question, of course, might be, what did the fathers believe? What did the early uh, church fathers um, believe in the second, third, fourth, fifth century, and so on? I have a quote from Eusebius, which I think kind of packages nicely. It just gives you a nice picture of what was going on in, in the early times of the church. Eusebius is talking about a very early father called Papias. Papias was a uh, uh, church leader who was probably born in the mid, around the middle of the first century and maybe died early to middle second century. So very early, he would have probably known, it sounds like from what he says, he knew apostles. Maybe not all the apostles, but some apostles. So he's probably the earliest source we have on eschatology outside of scripture itself. So, Eusebius says this about Papias. Um, he says, Papias says that after the resurrection of the dead, there will be a thousand-year period in which the kingdom of Christ will be established on this earth in material form. Eusebius goes on and says, I suppose that he got these notions by misunderstanding the apostolic accounts, not realizing that they had used mystic and symbolic language. For he was a man of very limited intelligence, as is clear from his books. Due to him, however, many church writers after him held the same opinion, relying on his early date. Irenaeus, for example, and others who adopted the same views. I think that quote kind of really packages well what was going on uh, with the fathers in, in, in this time period. The reality is they were divided. They split different ways. Some of the church fathers were def definitely um, Set on set pre, pre what we would call premillennials. Uh, back then, the word, of course, was Kiliest. And then other fathers were uh, very much against that. They strongly believed that Revelation 20 ought to be interpreted in an allegorical sense. Uh, some of them actually may have not even been real certain about whether uh, Revelation 20 should be accepted. But at any rate, you have a, a very different directions that the church is going. So I made a chart. 
did a little bit of reading up on this and I made a chart of some of the key fathers. So I'll just go ahead and let you guys get this and pass it around. It's kind of just a brief overview. It's not exhaustive, um, but it, it, it captures the positions of most of the key fathers who had something to say about this debate. There's a lot of guys who just don't talk about it. We don't have enough information from them. Um, there are also some guys that, who, who do talk about it. I might not have included them simply because I'm, I'm just trying to get a, a basic overview at this point. But if you look at this chart, obviously I've got my premillennial on one side and my amillennial on the other side. What are some of the trends that you can see just by looking at this briefly? Seems like the pre-money was the earlier view. Yep. The earliest view. And all the valiest fathers are on the left side. Okay, that came out that. <laughs> You're getting ahead. <laughs> Yeah, uh, premillennial is, um, is is historically the earliest view on record. Uh, that's not to say that... So one of the trends that I hope would kind of be more obvious about this is that there is a turning point. So in the second century and the third century, the predominant position was premillennial, as far as we can see, as far as the actual written records that we still have in, uh, available to us today. The premillennial position was dominant, but it wasn't without exception. There were some notable exceptions. One was uh, the first real big exception, of course, is Origen. We're going to learn about him later, but he was a very, very influential church father. Um, late second, well, really uh, writing in the third century, he's probably the first one that we know of who proposed an <coughs> allegorical reading of Revelation 20 specific. Now, before him, there were other fathers who had a problem with Kiliism. And uh, an example there would be Gaius, who was an elder in Rome in the uh, second century. Uh, he actually didn't believe that Revelation was really written by John. He thought it was unauthentic. So, um, but that's kind of where most of the ex uh, exceptions before Origen were. They just didn't accept Revelation at all. Then, um, after the third century, from the fourth century onward, then the trend takes a turn. And most people from that point onward start to become amillennial. And again, there are some exceptions. Uh, but for the most part, amillennial becomes predominant. And of course, Augustine, who was hugely influential, he was amillennial uh, in his eschatology. And interestingly, Wainwright uh, argues that. Um, argues that Augustine probably set kind of the gold standard more or less for amillennial interpretations. Most people after him for a long time pretty much accepted his, his point of view. Now there are some things uh, that struck me as I was reading these guys. Uh, as it, when it comes to this historical, very earlier interpretations, both amillennial and premillennial, the, um, it, it seems that outside of the specific question of this thousand-year reign spoken of in Revelation 20, 
Outside of that specific question, there is uh, largely, um, as far as most of the key points of eschatology go, largely there's a lot of agreement. Um, generally, the amillennials and Kilius are about the same. Uh, they all, for example, they all agree that immediately before Christ's return, one, an evil person called Antichrist will come. Two, there will be a great apostasy, great falling away. And three, there will be a final severe persecution or tribulation. Something they all, pretty much, everyone that I read pretty much agree on. It's simply a technical question of whether, does that happen, you know, right at the end of the thousand-year reign, and then everything comes to consummation, or does it happen, you know, right before the thousand-year reign, and then there's another thousand years, and then everything ends. Mainly, it's a question of that. Another thing that nearly everyone uh, that I found on the subject had in common was their interpretation of 70 AD and the destruction of the temple. They pretty much all kind of see the prophecies of Daniel and Christ about the abomination of desolation. Uh, they pretty much all see that as being fulfilled in 70 AD. So both of these points, um, uh, as far as how the amillennials you know, expect the Antichrist, that, that makes the, the amillennials of the patristic era differ significantly from a lot of amillennials today, I think. And then likewise, the uh, Kilius premillennials of the patristic era in, in kind of interpreting 70 AD to be the fulfillment of Daniel and Christ's prophecy there, that also makes them a lot, uh, a little bit different from uh, many premillennials today. Not all, of course, um, but, but many. So, um, that's more or less it in a nutshell as far as the, uh, the historical facts that we have to deal with go. question still kind of remains, and that is, uh, what should we believe? What position should we take? Um, I'm going to make this argument. First of all, if you are either amillennial or undecided, I would want to maybe gently recommend to you the Kiliest or premillennial interpretation. If, on the other hand, you are leaning post-millennial, then I would strongly urge you to abandon that position. Um, and finally, if you are already premillennial or curious in your beliefs, then I would simply want to leave you with a few important warnings, because I think there are some uh, that these premillennials could also um, pay attention to. I think, I, I really believe that the end times doctrine is, is very important. Um, part of the church's lasting relevance is in the fact that we have been given some key pieces of the puzzle of the end times. Um, the church is passing down the prophecies of scripture. It's passing down uh, what God has given us. And so uh, the, what's going to set the church apart from the rest of the world at the end times is it's going to be the only group of people who are actually ready for Christ's return, uh, who actually realize what's really going on at the time. And that's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.4. He says, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day, the day of the Lord, Christ returns, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. That's what sets the church apart. The whole world is going to be taken by surprise when Christ returns. But the church that believes and expects Christ and recognizes the signs of his coming will not. And that's why eschatology is important, despite the fact that there's an enormous uh, divergence uh, presently in all the different ways that churches 
interpret and understand end times prophecy, despite that fact, it's really important because it is something that we are passing on to the generation of the church that will be here when he comes back. So, um, uh, and that church is going to be the one that is witnessing and calling others in the world to repentance at that time. We'll be interpreting the signs as they happen. Jesus could come while we're alive um, as well, but regardless of whether we're alive or not, we know there will be a generation of the church alive. And so we need to, you know, protect and and um, uh, teach, protect, protect us, you know, the teaching of Scripture and teach it accurately. Uh, teach the end times doctrine accurately. So I want to give you two reasons why I think the amillennial position is a bit of a problem. And the first, for me, comes from the text itself. So if we look back at our passage in Revelation, chapter 20, I want to look at uh, what the text actually says about this 1,000-year reign. Now, I'll grant, I'll be the first one to admit and grant that the book of Revelation is a difficult book because it is rich in symbolism and uh, metaphor. So it can be hard when you're reading Revelation to look at it and say, okay, wait a minute, are we talking, is this a symbol here or is this something that should be you know, taken literally? Uh, I recognize that difficulty. And for that reason, it, it can be somewhat justified if someone wants to come along and say, as Augustine did, as Origen did, uh, come along and say, actually, this description of the 1,000-year reign, that's an allegorical description. That's a metaphor right there. I can understand why they might want to do that. The reason I disagree is because if we read the text that way, it actually gets pretty convoluted right away. And I'll show you what I mean here. Um, verse 4, and let's just go ahead and read them again. It says, uh, I'm going to move down toward the end of verse 4, because that's really where the controversy lies. Um, he says, I saw the souls of the righteous, basically. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Um, so what we're talking about is resurrections here. The honorable position requires verse 4, talking about the resurrection of the righteous, requires that resurrection to be not the literal physical raising to life of Christians, but the spiritual resurrection of Christians. And now that's a, that's a true Christian doctrine. The, 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 the uh, uh, doctrine of Scripture tells us that when we uh, are regenerated, it's like we were, we were dead in our sins, and then God brings us to spiritual life. So that is a true Christian doctrine. So they're not completely outside of the, out, out of bounds. Amillennials are not out of bounds when they say this is, you know, talking about the resurrection, the, the spiritual resurrection of believers. So the Amillennial said, okay, this is the spiritual resurrection of believers. Happens at the beginning, what ways basically when Christ comes the first time. The problem here is that if you read it that way, it gets a bit convoluted. And here's why. I'm going to go ahead and paraphrase this uh, in, in the way that would be how an amillennial would want to read it. The amillennial is saying that the first four is talking about a spiritual resurrection. So this is my paraphrase. Go ahead and look at the text as I read, make sure I'm, I'm staying more or less true to what the text says. Um, but reading it in an amillennial way. kind of reads like this. Verse 4. The righteous lived spiritually and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, but the wicked 
did not come to life physically until the end of the thousand years. Doesn't that seem a little convoluted? A little bit awkward? You're comparing, the, the first four and five are clearly making a contrast between one thing and another thing. And it seems like an awkward contrast to say, well, the, the, the righteous live spiritually, but the, the wicked do not live physically. It just doesn't sound right. Now, this would make perfect sense. It would make perfect sense to read it this way. The righteous lived spiritually, but the wicked did not come to life spiritually, period. That would make perfect sense. Why can't we read it that way? Look at the text. Why can't we read it that way? Because it ends with, until the thousand years are finished. Exactly. So it's telling us the wicked do come back to life. So we know that it's not talking about spiritual resurrection or spiritual life in verse 5. Okay? Another way that it could read that would make perfect sense. The righteous came to life physically, but the wicked did not come to life physically until later on. And that's actually the correct reading, and that's a premillennial uh, position there. So that's the first reason. I think the text is, is pretty clear enough. If you try to, it, it's contradictory to take verse 5, which is clearly literal, a physical resurrection, and then say that the contrast in verse 4 is a spiritual or metaphorical, is a contradictory approach at this, at this spot. There are places where Revelation is symbolic, for sure, but this is not going to be one of them because it, it, it convolutes the whole reading. Uh, of, the, of this comparison here. The second reason. Uh, there's a second reason why I would um, I want to encourage you to consider premillennialism. That is, uh, I'm actually going to temporarily enlist the help of postmillennialists. Um, they're actually a little bit helpful in helping, in, in helping us see the problems with amillennialism. Um, when postmillennialism developed, it seems to me that it kind of assumed that a metaphorical interpretation of Revelation 20 wasn't given. Uh, and that's probably true. It, it seems like it developed after the Reformation. If you, if you look across history, uh, Chileism or premillennialism has been long been the underdog. Uh, for much of Christian history, you could say that the majority of a lot of the prominent theologians have leaned on millennial. There have been exceptions all along the way. But... Um, a lot of them, especially after Augustine, that was, that was the way they leaned. Uh, the Reformers, of course, are no exception. I, I think on your chart, I just added Calvin and Luther. They're not, you know, Protestant era fathers, but they were highly influential. They were a millennial. Um, so, Hillism uh, was the underdog. And so when postmillennialism developed, it um, kind of took amillennialism as kind of the starting point. But they had some problems. They started looking at some Old Testament uh, prophecies where it talks about Christ reigning over a time of peace and prosperity on this earth. Really good example is uh, Psalm 72, uh, verses 7 and 8. It says, In his days the righteous shall flourish and abundance of peace. His days, this is a messianic psalm, so it says in Christ's days, the Messiah's days, the righteous shall flourish and abundance of peace until the moon is no more. He shall have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So the, um, the postmillennials saw this passage, and there's many more. Um, we can talk about them later, but there's many more in the Old Testament that talk about uh, a reign of the Messiah over this earth in a time of peace and prosperity. The postmillennials saw that and said, wait a minute. 
wait a minute, this the amillennial position here seems, or our position where we're kind of just going through, you know, intermittent persecution until finally Antichrist comes, and then things are really bad, and then Jesus comes. That seems a little pessimistic. And they found these verses, and so they started going a different way. <clears throat> of course, this is not really a problem for us premillennials, though. Uh, it's a problem for the amillennials. Uh, what the post-millennial lists have done is they found the verses which we know about, which are um, actually pointing not to a millennial reign that happens before Christ's return, but, ha but happens after his return. It's the biggest reason why I think we probably should lean pre-millennial, because uh, we do have these promises, and there's, no, there's nothing in the amillennial timetable that allows for this time period of Christ's reign. Okay. So then why not post-millennials? What's wrong with post-millennials? First of all, any questions up to this point? I'm looking fast. Okay. I think if it comes down to it, um, if you're if you're going to be either post millennial or amillennial, I actually believe that. Um, Post-millennialism is probably the more dangerous one, uh, and, and there's a big reason why. Despite the fact that they agree with us on some on some key points, uh, I think the greater danger lies with post-millennialism. Um, the reason for that is that it requires post-millennialism requires a more blatant rejection of some of the clear New Testament and Old Testament prophecies. Uh, that Scripture te tells us are the signs that precede Christ's coming. And so it sets, in doing that, it sets false expectations. It kind of sets you up to be uh, misled, I think. So post-millennial believes that, again, as we said, that the days preceding Christ's return will be a golden age. It's going to be a ton of great peace and prosperity as the world is just sort of taken over by the gospel. The problem is there's so many passages that flat-out contradict that. I'll just read a few, and just so you know, these are absolutely in context. We don't have time today, but if you want to talk about it more later, these come out of a context. These verses are in the context of end times prophecy. Matthew 24, 7, Jesus said, But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. 1 Thessalonians 5, 3. This sounds a lot like Thessalonianism, actually. It says, For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. It sounds to me like what, what the, the post-millennial position is actually saying, peace and safety will be here before Christ comes. But here, First Thessalonians seems to suggest that that is actually a deception. It's not for real. Second uh, Thessalonians 2-3, this is about the Antichrist specifically. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Also, 1 Timothy 4.1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed, giving heed to doctrines of demons. And then 2 Timothy 2, or I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 3.1. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. And there are many, many more such passages. Let's turn back to our passage from last week, actually, Luke 21. Verses 25 
again, just to kind of remind you, this is again predicting the state of things prior to Christ's return. Jesus is saying, and there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars, and on the earth, distress of nations, not peace and prosperity, distress of nations, with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. 27. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud of power and great glory. If a person were to create a 5,000 jigsaw puzzle, and then it gives you 50 pieces of the jigsaw puzzle and says, you're going to use these pieces so that when you see my jigsaw puzzle, you'll be able to identify it as mine. Do you think you'd be able to figure out which puzzle is his if you saw maybe a dozen different puzzles? I think I would. Because if I had 50 pieces, I'd be able to say, okay, this piece goes here, this piece goes there, right? this piece goes there. And that's the whole, I believe that's the, the idea of end times prophecy. God has given the church key pieces of the puzzle. That when we see things come together, when we see these, these things occur, we say, ah, it's here. The time is really close. But if the 50 pieces of the puzzle that God has given you is all fire and brimstone, do you sit there and say, oh, it's going to be so wonderful? No, you don't. Unfortunately, I feel like that's kind of the folly that postmillennialism falls into. It just ignores these clear signs that, that God has given us about many times. Um, and so that's why I would urge you, if, if you are a leaner, if you've ever leaned postmillennial, I would definitely urge you to, to be in that position and consider um, something that's more in line with what Scripture says. Um, in this, I think there's also a warning for us premillennials as well, though. If you only have 50 pieces of the jigsaw puzzle, should you sit down and start drawing the volcano? No. Because <laughs> you don't know what the rest of the picture looks like. And unfortunately, um, this uh, is something that I think it's a, it's a pitfall that a lot of premillennial preachers, uh, theologians, and others have fallen into. Brother Gill, uh, whom Jim Elliott was quoting, who we quoted in the beginning, he was kind of falling into that trap right there. Uh, in 1950, the state of Israel, or the, the, the nation of Israel, had recently been reinstated as a nation. And so a lot of Christians at that time were saying, oh, maybe it's getting closer. And, and it is, it's always getting closer. But I think what he had done is he had looked at the few pieces of the puzzle that Christ has given us, and he had drawn the whole picture out and thought he knew exactly how it was going to happen. And so he makes that prediction in 1950. Christ's millennial reign will come within 40 years. Well, it's been a lot longer than that. Um, but that's it's that kind of um, error that often gives premillennialism, Killianism, a bad name, and it is a pitfall. So it's something that we really shouldn't do as premillennials. Don't try to draw the picture. Just make sure that you you get the scriptures, the pieces of the puzzle that God has given us. Get those pieces right. Make sure you you, you read those and study those and understand those. Um, I think that the scriptures have so prophesied uh, the key pieces of the puzzle so that when they appear, it will be obvious to the church. The true believers, the, the people who know and are expecting Christ and are uh, submitting to his word are going to recognize it's here. Um, one of the post-millennial writers that I read uh, expressed, he used to be a millennial and he turned post-millennial later on, and he expressed the thought that he had been depressed by the claims of 
premillennialism. And I'm going to say I understand that. I actually do understand that. Because if you look at how the world is right now and how it's been so often in history and see all the trouble, it can be very grievous, even kind of depressing, to read the words of Christ that say, these are only the beginning of birth pains. That is kind of, a, it's really grieving, actually, to think about it that way. But while it's grieving, it doesn't have to be despair. Because Christ has given us a really great promise. Look at verse 28 in Luke 21. Again, we looked at this last week. He says, when these things begin to happen, all this terrible catastrophe and suffering, when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. When we see trouble, we don't think, oh, it's going to be another thousand years before we get to that millennial golden age. We don't have to think that. On the contrary, you know, we're getting closer to when Christ comes back and sets up the, the millennial kingdom himself. So that's that should be a, an encouraging thing for us um, if we read the prophecies of Scripture right.